Good morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. Great to be here with you guys. We're going to continue in our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we're making progress. Um, uh, you know, today we're going to begin our study of the 17th chapter of Luke. And so, uh, you know, we've started in chapter 1 and have gone through and we'll go through all the way to the end. So looking forward to that. But, you know, we've been following a certain section of Scripture that really began all the way back in chapter 13, verse 22, where Luke writes, And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem, the he referring to Jesus. And since chapter 13, we've covered a number of those aforementioned teachings of Jesus as he's made his way towards Jerusalem. Jesus has taught on such things as the kingdom of God, He's taught upon a discipleship and repentance and stewardship, just to name a few of those uh, teaching topics. He's addressed primarily two groups of people during this time, his disciples and the Pharisees. He's kind of gone back and forth addressing the Pharisees and confronting them regarding their hypocrisy and their sin, and then turning toward his disciples and warning them basically not to be like the Pharisees. Our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. And the title of our study is going to be Doing Our Duty. Okay, Doing Our Duty. Another teaching that Jesus has for his disciples. So we all rise to your feet in honor of God and his word. I'm going to read through our text from my Bible. I want to encourage you all to follow along in your own Bible. Luke records yet another teaching of Jesus' here in chapter 17, writing the following in verse 1. Then he said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Verse 7, And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning, the opportunity that we have to gather here to Uh, Open up your word, Lord, and uh, to open up our heart to all that you desire to say to us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak, um, Lord, through your word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would lead and guide us through uh, this scripture. And, Lord, that 
we might not only leave this place having heard from you, Lord, but we'll look to put these things into practice, Lord, that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but that we would be doers of your word as well. And so, Lord, we give you this time of study. We looked to your leading and guiding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. The dictionary defines duty as something that one is expected or required to do by moral or legal obligation. A secondary definition is an action or task required by a person's position or occupation. As Christians, what is our duty? Do we have any duties, any any actions or tasks required by us as believers in the Lord? Are there things that we are expected or required to do by moral or legal obligation? I believe the answer to that question is an undeniable yes, based upon what we read in God's holy word. Since we do have a moral obligation to do what is expected of us, it is important, it is paramount, in fact, that we look to understand and determine what those things are. The English word duty found in the last verse of our text is the Greek word ophilo. It's found 36 times in the New Testament and points to a number of different things that we ought to be doing as Christians. Here are just a few of them. Romans chapter 15 verse 1 states, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Later on uh, in the same chapter, Paul states, For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, uh, referring to the Jews' spiritual things, okay, it says that their duty is also to minister to them in material things. The idea is the Gentile churches, they were raising funds to give and send a love gift to the church in Jerusalem that was struggling uh, through a season financially. And so it was their duty to provide for them physical means, provision, okay? material things. First uh, Corinthians speaks of the duties of Christian husbands and wives and how this husband is to render, it's the same Greek word as duty, to his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. First John 4 states, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And Romans states, Owe no one anything. That word owe is the same Greek word once again. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. We see through these various examples of when this Greek word is used that there is an overarching theme that runs throughout them. A theme that's based upon love. Love for one another and love for for God. And this makes sense to us, right? Right? When we when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and great commandment. He followed that up and he said that the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
he gives a concluding remark saying, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so in a very simple and straightforward approach, our duty as believers, okay, our moral obligation is to love God and to love others. And we see this being taught by Jesus in our text today. Jesus is teaching his disciples what is expected of them as believers and followers of him. He is speaking of their duties. And as we go through this text, we're going to see elements that correspond to our responsibility to the Lord and our responsibility to one another. In our text, we're going to note five, five responsibilities that are laid out for us through this teaching of Jesus's, three of which will pertain to our moral obligation and responsibility toward one another. Two of them will deal with our responsibility toward God. Now, obviously, okay, just to set the record straight, I'm not looking to give us all an exhaustive list of all our duties and responsibilities as believers in the Lord, but to simply highlight and note the ones that Jesus does for us here in our text. And so we're going to start off by taking a look at our responsibilities toward one another, okay? And we'll do so by beginning in verse 1 and reading through the first part of verse 3. Again, Luke writes, he says, Then he said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. We'll stop right there. Okay? Uh, verse 1 lets us know that Jesus has once again redirected his attention back to his disciples. For the last several chapters, have I, as I already mentioned, Jesus has been going back and forth. He's got this multitude that's been following him around, and he addresses the Pharisees, and then he turns and addresses the disciples, and then he goes back to the Pharisees, and then back to his disciples. He's, he's now back to his disciples, okay? And he's warning them. He had just warned the Pharisees and confronted them about their sinful love of money. And so he now turns his attention back towards his disciples and warns them about some possible sins in their own lives that they need to be mindful of. Jesus starts off by saying, it is impossible that no offenses should come. The meaning of the word offenses literally speaks of stumbling blocks. Uh, a stumbling block refers to any hindrance that's placed in the way and causing one to stumble or, or to fall. Okay? It was actually used as a hunting term in connection to the idea of the trigger of a trap on which bait is placed and which when touched by the animal, it springs and causes it to close, resulting in the entrapment of the animal. Okay, so that's the actual Greek word, how it was used. But in the New Testament, this word is always used metaphorically. It's never used in that instance, in that regard, as an animal trap. Okay, it's used metaphorically in a moral sense to refer to something that leads someone into sin uh, or becomes a hindrance to the way in which one's headed. Stumbling blocks and hindrances, they are bound to come. We live in a fallen world, okay, with fallen people, and though we are saved, we still sin. We still fall short of the glory of God. 
In this life, we will continually battle against the flesh and against our own sinful desires, but we will also have run-ins with one another. Because people, you might not like this, but people are sinful. You and and I, we were sinful. And, And because people live in relationship with one another, it is inevitable that we will sooner or later have difficulties with one another and become hindrances to one another. But even though these hindrances, okay, excuse me, hindrances, these offenses, these stumbling blocks, they're bound to come, Jesus still warns us, but woe to him through whom they do come. Jesus gives a very stern warning here to any by whom these offenses do come. He pronounces woe upon them. That word woe, it carries the sense of horror and misery that comes upon a person. Jesus wasn't messing around here. He took this matter very seriously. Jesus was very concerned about the little ones. Now, Jesus is recorded as speaking similarly in both Matthew and Mark's gospel and referring to children as little ones. But we know that Jesus wasn't only referring to those young in physical age, but also those young in the spiritual age. You see, little ones could be used to refer not only to physical children, but also to spiritual children, babes in Christ, those who are new in their faith, those who don't know any better when it comes to certain spiritual disciplines and doctrines. Jesus declared to those who would cause these little ones to stumble or sin that it would be better for them if a millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Wow. <laughs> that, that doesn't sound like the you know, peace-loving, gracious, compassionate, merciful, and forgiving Jesus that we so admire, right? Jesus sounds more like some sort of mobster detailing what's done to those who step out of line, you know. Don't mess with Jesus' little ones. Again, Jesus was not messing around. He was not mincing his words. This was a huge issue and something that he wanted to make sure his disciples clearly understood. Leading people astray, causing them to sin, was a very serious matter, and it is a still a very serious matter. The consequences for doing so were so severe that it would be better to have a huge millstone that weighed hundreds of pounds hung around your neck and to be tossed into the sea and drowned than to be the one to cause others to stumble and sin. I think it very important to consider the fact that Jesus had just finished addressing the Pharisees when Jesus said this. The Pharisees were guilty of doing this very thing. They were guilty of being a stumbling block to others. They stood in the way of people coming to faith in Jesus. Earlier on in our study of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus pronounced woes against the Pharisees and the lawyers, saying to them, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. The religious leaders were the ones who had knowledge of the Lord, knowledge of his word, but they kept that knowledge to themselves. They did not bother to act upon it. And those who were attempting to act upon it, they were hindered from doing so because of the religious leaders. No wonder Jesus had such an issue with these Pharisees. You know, I 
was telling first service, and I kind of felt bad, but I'll do it again. Um, you know, I, I sometimes just think things, and it's not good, but I just think, you know, Jesus, he sees these Pharisees, and I, like, wonder, like, is he, like, man, I wish I had a millstone right now to put, you know, and I think, no, Jesus wouldn't think that. But then I read this, and I'm like, maybe he would think that. I don't know. Like, this was a huge issue. Jesus concludes with a warning at the beginning of verse 3, stating, take heed to yourselves. Your translation may read, so watch yourselves. Be on your guard, okay? Or pay attention to yourselves. The Greek word is written in the imperative mood, which is used to express a command or a strong exhortation. It's also written in the reflexive, which means it's to back to us. We need to do the action to ourselves. We need to check ourselves, Okay? Jesus is commanding us to beware, to watch out, not for others, but for ourselves to make sure that we aren't doing anything that would cause someone else to stumble or sin. And that is the first duty that we highlight and make note of today for those of you who are note-taking. We have a responsibility toward one another to make sure we don't cause another brother or sister to, in Christ to stumble. We need to look out for one another. We need to make sure we aren't doing anything that would cause another brother or sister to stumble. We need to not only think of our own lives, but also those around us and how our actions may impact others around us. You know, we can find ourselves doing this in a a couple of different ways, stumbling other people. Okay, Romans actually, chapter 14, speaks a lot of how our liberties in Christ can become a stumbling block towards others. People were judging one another and causing people to sin based upon their liberties in Christ. Questions were coming up. Is it okay to eat meat that's been offered to idols? And some people are like, yeah, that's okay. And other people are like, no, you can't do that. And other people are like, hey, can can we drink wine? And they're like, no, you can't do that. And other people are like, yeah, we're totally free to do that. And people's liberties were being exercised all the while stumbling other people, other believers, those who were weaker in the faith. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 14. He says, Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Hey, we have liberty in Christ. Amen, right? But if your liberty is done in the presence of someone else and it causes them to stumble, it causes them to sin, then we are no longer walking in love, okay? We are no longer doing our proper duty as believers in the Lord. Romans 14 says, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. You know, another way we can cause others uh, to stumble is through advocating and supporting false teaching. Again, in Romans, Paul writes, now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Now, I know this may apply to me more so than some of you. 
As a teacher of God's word, I know and I understand that I will be held to a stricter judgment for the things that I teach and how I lead people through God's word. It is something that I take very sincere. I understand that. But listen, many of you are parents and have a responsibility to teach your children the word of God. You have a responsibility to lead your individual households and you will be held accountable for the teachings you give through word and deed. We need to make sure that our actions and our words line up in accordance with God's word and that our example can be one that is followed by our own little ones that God has entrusted to us. We must be very mindful of our own words and our deeds and how they will impact our brothers and sisters in Christ. May we never be a stumbling block to others in their pursuit of Jesus Christ. Well, let's continue on taking a look at the next two responsibilities. The first one dealt with our responsibility not to be a stumbling block, okay? Uh, But let's read verses 3 and 4 to note the next two. Again, verse 3, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Jesus gives two imperatives in these verses. The first imperative is in regard to what we are to do if a brother sins against us. Jesus seemingly anticipates a question the disciples would have asked him. He told them that they need to make sure that they aren't causing others to sin, but anticipates the question of what to do in the case where you're the one that was sinned against. Okay, Jesus, we understand we're not to cause other people to sin, but how do we handle those situations when when we're the ones that have been sinned against? What, What do we do in that case, in that situation? Jesus commands that we are to rebuke them, okay? We are to go to our brother or sister. We are to make them aware of their sin in case they're blinded by it. And we are to admonish them towards repentance. You guys, sin brings pain. It brings destruction. It brings death. And since we are all connected in the body of Christ, when one member gets involved in sin, it will have an impact upon the body of Christ. That is why it's so important that we be ready to address and confront sin when necessary. We don't want to just turn a blind eye and say, okay, well, you know, there's our brother totally in sin doing that. Well, I guess it doesn't bother me. No, it does impact you because they're part of the body of Christ, okay? You're not going to, you know, chop your finger off and say, oh, well, it's just my finger, you know? Like, no. Every part of the body, you hurt, if a part of the body's hurting, it needs to be addressed. Now, I must admonish you all, okay, that rebuking a brother or sister in the Lord is something that must be done with great care and prayerful consideration, okay? We need to make sure that our own hearts are in the right place and that when we do rebuke someone, we're doing it with the right motives. Our goal in rebuking someone should always be to bring reconciliation and restoration to our brother or sister. When we do rebuke someone, it must be motivated by our love for one another. We must speak the truth in love. You know, we call sin 
sin. We don't sugarcoat it. We say, hey, that's wrong. You shouldn't be doing that, or you should be doing this. Okay, that's sin. We speak the truth, but we do so in a manner that is loving, that is gracious, okay, that is considerate of our own weaknesses and our own shortcomings as well. And another thing to consider is what James writes. How our desire should not be to spread sin, but to cover that sin. James states, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins, right? If someone sins against you, you don't go to everybody else in the church and say, this person did this to me, this person did this to me. You speak to everybody except for the person that sinned against you. That's not the way we handle it, okay? We don't look to spread sin. We look to, in love, cover it. Matthew chapter 18 gives a great model for how we approach a brother who sinned against us. We're to first go to him privately. Okay? We tell him his fault between you and him alone. Okay? Jesus declares that if they hear you, meaning that they receive what you have to say, then you've gained your brother or sister back. Again, that's the goal in rebuking someone that has sinned against you. Go to them and look for reconciliation. Okay? effectively communicating the offense is important as well. And so I would encourage you, prayerfully consider how you will do so prior to confronting someone. Just don't go, you know, straight into a situation, ah, you know, and then just, you know, shoot from the hip here. Don't do that, okay? You'll probably cause more harm than good. Communicate effectively, do so prayerfully, okay? These are just a few tips, suggestions for how to rebuke someone that has sinned against you based upon what the Bible teaches us. Remember to do so prayerfully, carefully, and lovingly. Do so with the heart and the intent to cover sin, not spread sin. And may our goal always be reconciliation and restoration towards the body of Christ, okay? If our heart is not in the right place, okay, if we're going to rebuke someone and we have no intentions of reconciling with them, you should not be rebuking that person. Okay? Our heart, our motives need to be in the right spot, right spot first. Well, as I mentioned, Jesus gives us two imperatives in these verses. The first was to rebuke a brother that sinned against us. The second imperative is what we must is that we must forgive them when they repent. When a brother or sister repents, we must forgive them. Okay? That is our responsibility. That is our duty. Okay? Now, some people may want to cling to that conditional phrase, if they repent and withhold their forgiveness until they can be certain that they have truly repented, right? In such cases, we often err, and we make people prove their repentance over great lengths of time and through countless actions, and we end up running the risk of sinning ourselves in such cases by not being forgiven, forgiving and not heeding Jesus' command here. We make people earn our respect, earn our trust back before we will ever forgive them. That is not what Jesus says to do. And, and you know, I think Jesus knew that would be our tendency. And, and so he gives a hypothetical situation here in our text to show that it isn't our responsibility to judge the heart of someone and whether or not they have truly repented. Jesus spoke of a brother who sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent. And you know what he says? You shall forgive them. 
You see, our natural tendency to such a situation would be to doubt the genuineness of that person's repentance. Now, how can someone truly be repentant and sorrowful over their sin if he continues doing the same thing over and over and over and over again and he just goes, oh, I'm sorry, I repent. You know, it's like, no, I don't believe you. That's our tendency. It's not our responsibility, you guys. It is not our duty to judge another man's heart. That's the Lord's job. Before his master, he will stand or fall. It isn't up to us to say, oh, that's genuine repentance. Oh, that's not genuine repentance. Our responsibility is to forgive someone no matter how many times they've offended us. If they come back and they say they've repented, we are to take them at their word. We are to forgive them. And it is very important, you guys, that we remember the example of our Lord and Savior when it comes to how He forgives us. Let me ask you this question. How many times have you asked God to forgive you for the same sin? Have you ever asked Him to forgive you the same sin in the same day? (gasps) Yeah, I think so, huh? You know, I'm so thankful and grateful that we serve the God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and as many chances as we need. If we will turn to Him and repent and seek His forgiveness, it is there for us however many times we need it. And the next time you want to cut your brother or sister off, you want to cut them short when it comes to forgiving them the same sin, just remember how often God has forgiven you the same thing and follow his example and forgive. Let's continue in our text, turning our attention now towards our responsibility and duties toward the Lord. Read with me verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 says, And the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. We'll stop there. Jesus just told his disciples to forgive their brother who sins against them however many times are needed, that if they say they repent, then we're to always forgive them. And in response to such a duty and obligation, the apostles respond to Jesus saying, increase our faith. You guys need to understand this. To truly forgive someone over and over again requires faith. It requires faith that God will, one, correct the offender, and two, protect the one offended. It requires faith that God will do those two things. To the disciples, to do such a thing was beyond their own capability. They felt they needed greater faith than what they currently had in order to follow through with the obligation to forgive like our Lord forgives. Now, the request they have is genuine. I believe with all of my heart that they made this request with sincere hearts. They wanted to be able to forgive like that, but felt they lacked the faith to really be able to do so. This wasn't one of those like... Uh, increase our faith, God, like that. You're asking us to do something impossible, like, and and just writing it off. No, I I think this was a genuine request, a sincere realizing, Lord, what you're asking is beyond us. We need you to increase our faith. 
It's interesting that Jesus does not answer their request to give them more faith, even though I believe it was a genuine, sincere request. You see, they didn't need more faith. They simply needed the right kind of faith. Faith like that of a mustard seed. Now, we understand that Jesus is speaking figuratively here, right? Mustard seeds don't have faith, okay? But the kind of faith we need can be described by by what we do know about a mustard seed. First of all, we know that the mustard seed is very small. It's one of the smallest seeds of all, according to Mark chapter 4, verse 31. We know that a seed is alive and it has potential for great growth. We know that at first, the growth that the seed experiences isn't even seen by the human eye. Okay, it develops unseen, under the earth, okay, first sending out its roots and finding nourishment and strength it needs to eventually burst out onto the scene. And when it finally does break through the ground, it's still small to the human eye, but eventually it will grow even more and it will become a, a fruitful tree within a garden. Now, we can relate all these things to our faith as well. Our faith can be very small at first, tiny, in fact, but that really doesn't matter as long as it is alive and it's growing. At first, our growth may go unnoticeable, unperceived to the naked eye, but it's all part of the process. We need to make sure our faith is grounded in the Word of God before we look for these groundbreaking steps of faith in life. As we get rooted in the Word, we will grow, and eventually we will break forth through the ground and ultimately begin to bear fruit. But there is one thing about a mustard seed that I think is the most important element when it comes to our faith. A mustard seed is 100% dependent upon and relying upon a farmer to first plant it, then water it and tend to it when needed. Without the farmer first planting it, the seed will never grow. It will never become fruitful. It just sit there. Okay? You put it on a table, it doesn't grow. It needs to be planted by someone. So too when it comes to our faith. Our faith must be 100% dependent upon the Lord and His work in our life. You see, you guys, when it comes to faith, the most important thing is not the amount of our faith, but the object of our faith. A little bit of faith in an almighty God is more than enough. I heard it likened to ice skating. I'm not an ice skater. Any ice skaters in here? Any people that ice skate on the regular or... You've done that before, grew up in the north. A couple of people. Okay, a couple of people. Good. Okay. So this is, I, I read this, I thought, oh, that makes sense, although I'm not an ice skater. But it, sa- it says, when ice skating, it's far better to have small faith on thick ice than great faith on thin ice. It made sense to me. <laughs> Our small faith in so great a Savior can accomplish great things. And that is the point I believe Jesus is wanting to emphasize here. The apostles only needed faith as a mustard seed, and they would be able to do what seemed impossible, like speak to a mulberry tree, telling it to be uprooted and planted into the sea. Faith that was completely dependent upon the Lord. That is the first thing we note about our duty to the Lord. We are to be fully dependent upon 
the Lord and his work in our life. Our faith must be in him. We must trust in him. We put all our hope, our faith in him. We trust in the work that he's doing in our hearts and in our lives. We must trust that he is more than able to do the impossible in us and through us. Jesus referred to things that were impossible for man in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 19, verse 26, but how with God all things are possible. It was the Old Testament uh, prophet Jeremiah who writes, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. And Paul writes of our ability to do all things through Christ who strengthens us, Philippians 4.13. You see, a little bit of faith in a great and mighty God is what we need to be able to do all that God requires to fulfill our duties. Let's move on to our final point, an observation, as we highlight the second of our obligations or duties to the Lord. Read with me verses 7 through 10, and we'll wrap this study up. It says, And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Jesus wraps up this text by asking some rhetorical questions about a servant and what's expected of him from his master. He asks, And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat? The answer is, none of them would say that. Okay? because the servant still had other duties and responsibilities to tend to. Jesus continued asking, wouldn't the master, you know, basically he proposes, wouldn't this be what the master says to prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I've eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink? The answer is, of course, that's what's going to happen. Okay? The responsibility of the servant is to serve his master. And so that would be the normal flow of operations. You're outside doing some work. Okay, you come inside. You're still a servant. You're still going to serve your master and take care of his needs. A third question Jesus asked, does he, referring to the master, okay, does the master thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? The answer, Jesus says, I think not. The master doesn't give special thanks for the ordinary tasks and responsibilities that are required of a servant. These things are expected of a servant. And Jesus says in verse 10, so likewise you, okay, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say we are unprofitable servants. We have done that, excuse me, we've done what was our duty to do. We should not serve the Lord thinking that he now owes us for the work that we've done for him. We shouldn't be looking for a pat on the back after all we do for the Lord. Okay? Listen, that is the way of the Pharisees. The Pharisees did all of their religious acts and services to be seen by men, okay, to receive the praise of men. And Jesus repeatedly said of them, Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Okay? They did things in order to be seen by man, and man's like, ooh, look at those guys. And Jesus says, yeah, that, that's your reward right there. You just got it. Okay, 
You're not going to get anything else for that. Instead, we should see ourselves as unprofitable servants. Now understand here, you guys, that this is not some you know, sense of false humility or, or some sort of you know, self-deprecating behavior Jesus is expecting from us, nor is it suggesting that God will not or does not reward his servants. You see, the argument, the example here, is from the lesser to the greater. If a common servant is faithful to obey the orders of his master who does not reward or thank him, how much more ought Christ's disciples obey their loving master who has promised to reward them generously and graciously? The idea behind being an unprofitable servant is that we understand that what we have to offer will never bring profit to us. Okay, We are forever indebted to our Lord. No amount of work or service would ever render us profitable where we end up on the positive side of things where God would then owe us, right? As if there's a ledger and all of a sudden, well, I've done enough work now. I'm on the plus side. I'm profitable. Now Jesus owes me. No, 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 no. Okay. In comparison to all that God has done for us, we will never be able to repay him. Never will we be able to bring a positive balance to our account. We are servants of the Lord. The word servants is the Greek word doulos. It speaks of a slave, a bondservant, one bought at a price. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We have been bought at a price. A very costly price, in fact. Peter writes of how we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from our aimless conduct received by tradition from our fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish or without And without spot. Jesus shed his blood for us. The price that he paid was his perfect, sinless body nailed to the cross of Calvary. Nothing we could ever do could ever repay him for the debt we owe. We are nothing more than bondservants of Christ, bought at a price, and willingly and gladly serving our Lord. And that is our duty. That is our responsibility. Our duty is to serve God humbly and willingly all of our days. We don't work for rewards. Though God will give rewards in eternity, we understand that they will all be due to the grace of God upon us. We don't work for recognition and pats on the back. We simply do what is expected of us as bondservants of the Lord. We simply do what is our duty and we enjoy doing so knowing the great joy there is in serving the Lord and living for Him. And so there you have it. Just a a few of our duties, our responsibilities, our moral obligation as believers and followers of the Lord. We are to love the Lord and we're to love our neighbor. Loving our neighbor means being careful not to do anything to cause them to stumble or sin. It means confronting sin and rebuking them graciously in love. It means being willing to forgive them as many times as it takes in order to reconcile with them and receive them back as part of the family of Christ. 
Loving our Lord means many things, but here in our text, we noted two things specifically. How loving the Lord involves putting our complete faith and trust in Him and the work that He's doing in us and through us, and it involves us serving Him humbly and willingly all of our days. And we know and we trust that one day we will be welcomed into heaven, and we will hear those faithful words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. But until that day comes, may we be of the mindset that we are nothing more than unprofitable servants simply doing what was our duty to do. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the work that you've done in our hearts and in our lives. We thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that purchased us, Lord, and we are, Lord, but unprofitable servants, Lord, knowing that you paid a debt we could never pay. And Lord, we've been bought at a price. And so, Lord, I pray that we would honor you, that we would glorify you, that we would serve you humbly and willingly all of our days. Lord, that we would put our faith in you completely, Lord, that we would trust in the work you're doing in our hearts and lives. And Lord, in our interactions with one another, I pray that you'd keep us from stumbling others. Lord, I pray that you would give us boldness to confront sin. And Lord, I pray that you'd give us the faith that's needed to forgive over and over and over again, just as you've forgiven us. Lord, we look to you for the ability to do these things. We look to you for the strength to do our duty. Lord, we know in of ourselves we are unable. And so, Lord, strengthen us by your Spirit. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.